I'm sure for many of you who are older, or let's use the word more mature, um, you might recall some of the life lessons that your parents taught you when you were young. And hopefully you're sharing some of those very life lessons if you have young children. But they're important. Our parents decided to teach them to us because they, they knew they would add value to our life and meaning. And one of the life lessons my parents taught me, and it has always stuck with me, although unfortunately I didn't always listen, is maybe one of the most destructive things that we can do in this life is to lie. Um, and I found that to be true, not only personally, um, but then also as a pastor with counseling and other things. I've really discovered that if you cannot trust what a person tells you, there's really no way to have a, a real, a genuine relationship. Now that said, we find that we live in a, a culture and a day and age where lying seems to be the go-to. Well, let me give you a couple examples. Um, this is a marketing technique, if you will. Uh, and I know inflation's bad, but now I don't know if you've heard this term, shrinkflation, where you're paying either the same amount or you're paying more. And if you really look closely at what you're purchasing, you're coming to discover that you're being deceived. Um, this packaging trick, it makes it look like you're going to get a good chunk of meat. You get home and it's like, wait a minute, this isn't even going to feed the family, is it? Um, those are one of the old ways in which we've been lied to. Here's one of the new ways. I don't know if you've heard of this deep fake technology. More and more information is coming out about that. Somebody can actually uh, use computer software. There's AI-generated technology which will take a picture of you or a video of you, video of you, and it will actually put words in your mouths that you never said, or it can it can generate uh, a video where you're doing something that you never you never did. Um, and there's real concern over this. In fact, I think the government might, might actually uh, start considering passing some laws because you could actually have a video of, of showing somebody doing a crime when they weren't even there. It's almost like uh, humanity is inventing new ways to sin. And this form of deception, it, it, it's, it's going to get a lot of people in trouble. Uh, despite the modern advances in technology, there's some of the old go-tos. And, and I don't know if you've ever been the victim of this, um, but something is framed in such a way, or only a portion is shown to you so that it misleads you or deceives you. I'm going to show you a very short video clip of a weather report, keep your eyes in the upper right-hand corner. Probably seen the video on Facebook as that reporter struggles to keep his balance. Okay, uh, picking it up here in Wilmington, North Carolina, right at the Intracoastal, and we're in one of these bands. So that's Mike Seidel. So I'm thinking maybe the, right the, weather, or the cameraman might have got fired because he didn't frame that right. The guy, uh, he's ready to be blown over and the dudes are just walking by like it's no big deal. Uh, hopefully you're getting the point by now is, is deception and lies are very much a part of life that we have to deal with. And I, I've truly come to appreciate what my parents were trying to teach me. If there's a lack of honesty or if deception is what rules a relationship, there is no relationship. Now, with all that in mind, I, I would like to simply share with you an observation I, I have made, um, not only from study of God's word, but from life itself. The most destructive form of lying is when we lie to ourselves, and we start to believe that lie. Today's lesson from John's first letter gets us deeper into that, and hopefully you start to understand why it seems like almost a crass theme, love hates lies, but, but quite honestly, the two cannot coexist. John puts it to us this way. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. 
We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you've heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. All right, just going through the lesson itself, probably you come to recognize there's a lot for us to un unpack this morning. And it almost sounds uh, overly complicated, but if we understand how the Holy Spirit has John write, it, it becomes much simpler. And if we take a look at a few key words, um, it's actually one of the most encouraging lessons I think we might have uh, ever studied throughout our Lenten series in the past. L let me show you what I mean. The first thing we have to do to get into the lesson is, is review some of the things that we talked about last week or in last week's lesson. And I had explained to you that John's writing of the epistles is quite different than most of the other books of the Bible. Most books will follow a linear train of thought, go from point A to B to C to D and, and so forth. And usually we just follow that path and it, it leads us to a destination. It makes a lot of sense along the way. The Holy Spirit, as John recorded his letters quite differently, and, and the uh, linguistic technique I identified for you last week is what's known as amplification. And basically, it's almost like this circular pattern where John will teach something new, or he'll teach the same thing from a different aspect, but the only way for it to make sense is if you go back to the previous lesson, or you go back to previous things that John has written. You will not only find that to be true of today's lesson, but quite honestly, all the lessons in this series of Lent means love. He's either going back to something we've studied previously in this letter, or, and we'll see this this morning, uh, he goes back to what he's written in his gospel lesson, the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And understanding what has come before helps to clarify what John now writes in this lesson. Another thing that we need to review is, and I talked about this because I shared with you a, a background video and there was one clarification I had made. The authors of that video left it somewhat ambiguous who this John was and we worked through that. Uh, John the son of Zebedee, the brother of James, one of the first 12 disciples, is in fact John the Elder. And that term the Elder is how he identifies himself uh, in these epistles. And today's lesson is a perfect example of why he uses that terminology. Since this was written at the end of the first century, John, in essence, by default, was left as the overseer of the churches of Asia Minor. He was the only apostle left alive. All the rest, from what we know from either history or from scriptures, they had been martyred. They had put to, been put to death for their faith. So John was given oversight of these churches, and he develops a very deep and caring relationship with them. And I just give two examples from the verses today. This technion that he uses in verse 1, it can be used a way to describe little children. Uh, but here's one of the cool words, and, and maybe the better way to translate it. He's referring to them as his darlings. Uh, and I had mentioned last week, and it's, it's true in this lesson, John saw these Christians that he was left to guide spiritually like his own children or, or his grandchildren. And there was a, a more than just a fondness. He seriously cared about them. You see that again in, in verse 7. Adelphoi is usually translated as brother or sister. You're talking about a fellow Christian. But given this context, it's really describing those that you're united with by affection or by love. Let me just cut to the chase. John loved these people, and they were dealing with some really darkness in their lives. 
And this is the review then of, of one of the main points of last week's lesson, the false teaching that John warned them about Gnosticism. Now I'm not going to rehash all of the things that we talked about last week, but let me summarize it simply by reminding us all that Gnosticism was a hybrid religion. It took a little bit of Christianity, a little Judaism, a little bit of the world religions. And basically what it left people with was the question, who is this Jesus? They didn't identify him as the Messiah. Uh, they didn't all recognize him either as the Son of God or as the Son of Man. There was confusion even amongst the Gnostics. But they did all come to this conclusion that they had no idea what Jesus was really doing on this earth. They didn't see him as God's rescuer to set us free from sin. They thought he was simply a, a wise man who came to find further enlightenment in this life and then also to share that enlightenment with his followers. Nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, scripture itself verifies the division between the truth and the lie of what both John and his, uh, his disciples were fighting against. And what we'll find in this letter is John uses uh, illustration after illustration to uh, highlight this line between truth and lies, between dark and light, between life and death. Because Gnosticism not only directly goes against scripture, but here's where it's nice where God always offers us opportunities sometimes to just think this through. Uh, John wrote this about 2,000 years ago, and I would simply put before you, do you think the world is any wiser than it was at the time when John wrote these words? And if enlightenment is the goal, if, if that's the world's goal, if that's God's goal, then we are failing miserably. Because I don't think we're getting wiser. In fact, I think we're headed in the other direction. Now, with all of that uh, review, then it works for us to dig into this lesson. And we hear that term of endearment. He's speaking to his spiritual children. And he's saying, I'm writing to you because I really don't want you to sin. <clears throat> well, of course, what father would want his children to sin? But it's the word that he uses for sin that already clues us in on, on where he's going with this. And since the scripture have a lot of words for sin, it's good for us to understand this is that one term, homicide. Uh, and usually we, we just simply say it, the meaning is it, it means to miss the mark. And, and that's a good translation for it, but it, it goes much deeper. One of the things by using this term tells us that John is not only hoping that his uh, uh, disciples that are under his spiritual care avoid all forms of sin, but it really takes us directly back to this, this false teaching of Gnosticism. One of the problems they were facing was is while they were in the early stages of their own history, there were Christians that were being enticed away from the Christian faith. There's something about Gnosticism that is very intriguing to the sinful nature. Um, if, if somebody comes to you with an offer of, of more intelligence or uh, superior knowledge, uh, that appeals to the moral side of our, of our human nature. Who wouldn't want to be wiser in the ways of this world? But the real lie that it was teaching was somehow, if you can attain this higher level of understanding about life and maybe what comes after, then you become your own savior. You can rescue yourself. And it's the very same sin, just repackaged, that the devil's been peddling to this world since the beginning of time. In a way, and I don't know if it goes back to our original creation, if it goes back to what sin has done to twist that creation, but there is something deep-seated inside of us where we, we somehow want to cut God out of the equation. We want to be self-made people. We don't want any help. We're, we're going to do this on our own. And somehow that gives us some feeling of superiority or independence. I'm, I'm not quite sure. But the truth of the matter is the devil was tapping into this, and John says, I'm writing to you to warn you just how destructive this is. 
At the same time, John is very much a realist. He says, and, and it's a conditional sentence. He's saying, I know you're going to sin. John understands the, the sinful human nature. That's what we do. By nature, sinners sin. And he immediately takes them to the correct answer. You might remember last week, we talked about John put that in the package of confessing your sins. You unburden yourselves of these things that are holding you back. Well, today he's saying the same thing, but he's, he's saying it in a bit of a different way. The confession leads us right back to Christ, but now he takes us directly there. He doesn't mention confession, but he knows that that's still echoing in our mind, and we somehow have to deal with our sin. And the only way to do that is through, and it's interesting, he uses the word to describe Jesus paraclete. Now, I don't know how much you've studied the scriptures, but almost without exception, that term paraclete is typically translated as comforter, and it's associated with the work of the Holy Spirit and his gift of faith. This is one of those unique settings where he actually uses it in references to Jesus Christ, and it shouldn't be translated as comforter, but as advocate. And he's drawing the picture of holy law condemns us before God, and hopefully we confess it to him, but even if we admitted to God we're sinners, that would do us little good unless there was somebody to come to our defense. So Jesus Christ steps between us as sinners and holy God and his law, and he becomes the one who defends us. John goes on to use another word for this, atoning sacrifice. And maybe you learned that word when you're going through some form of Bible study. The best way to remember what atonement means is to divide it out at one meant. Jesus is the only one who can once again make us at one with God the Father. And that echoes something that he talked about last week, the restoration of the relationship, the return of the fellowship between God and his creation. Now, as a defense against the Gnosticism, and you have to remember a lot of these people to whom John is writing did have a Jewish heritage, he, with that word, recalls one thing that should be foremost in their minds as part of their heritage. That is, in the book of Leviticus, God gave to his people an annual festival known as Yom Kippur. Uh, we would translate that as the Day of Atonement. It was an annual festival for two reasons. One, it was the highlight of all of their Jewish festivals. It was like our Christmas or Easter, so it really stood out for them. And the fact that they had to repeat it year after year told them something. I'm going to remind us all and review what this festival is about. I'm, uh, there's a video I had on the book of Leviticus. This takes us about halfway into that clip, and we'll pick it up there as they describe the Day of Atonement. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed, that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. 
But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're gonna ignore you or they're gonna turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary and he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. So that's the review of the Day of Atonement. And one of the reasons why I wanted to review it is the reminder that it was the annual sacrifice. The high priest had to get those two goats. There were other several sacrifices involved. And it was the only day of the year that he could actually enter into the most holy place in the tabernacle or in the temple. But he could only do so after having performed this blood sacrifice. It was pointing forward to this sacrifice, to the sacrifice that only had to be made once. That was the weakness of the Day of Atonement. No blood of animals can ever compensate for the sin of all of humanity against God the Creator. But there is one whose blood is perfect, and the sacrifice of that blood makes us right with God once again, makes us at one with our Creator. And the beautiful thing of this and the comforting thing of this is that it is all couched in love. See, we always see death and sacrifice as an extension, if you will, of the law or of the need to satisfy justice, and there's that aspect to it, but we dare not overlook, and that's why it's best to study it in this framework of Lent means love, is this sacrifice was made out of love. I think sometimes we forget or take for granted or maybe estimate too little what it means for holy God to become human, to become part of his created, so that not only would he know exactly what we know and feel what we feel, but then he could actually compensate for all of the times that we have failed to live up to our creation. For every lie that we have ever told and so many more sins, his blood was shed. So that when the Father looks at us, he only sees the perfect life and sacrifice of his Son. Now that is what John wants his listeners to have in mind, these people he cares about so much, especially as he now goes into this second section. And again, it's built on repetition. Last week we talked about the fact that only God could restore the fellowship that he created us to enjoy with him. And he talked about what breaks that fellowship, sin. And last lesson was all about, if you will, light and dark. Now he puts it in the same thing in terms of truth and lies. The truth is, is the only thing that can restore fellowship with God, and then ultimately the consequence of that is to have fellowship with each other and our fellow human beings, is for God himself to redeem us, to make that sacrifice of atonement. And if we don't see it that way, then we cannot have fellowship with God. Now, the way he talked about it, John talked about it last week, was the only way to get there was by confessing our sin. And he doesn't leave that behind, but now he adds another layer to that. The only way that you can actually recognize if somebody is in fellowship with God is whether or not they walk in the steps of Jesus. Now, how does that play out? Um, this is where it's going to get a little complicated because uh, as much as I appreciate having two campuses in our ministry, there are sometimes some drawbacks to it. Because the perfect example of what John is talking about is built on something that we learned in our last series of sermons and something that John had already referenced in his gospel in chapter 17. 
Um, here's what I'm going to encourage you, and, and don't misunderstand. Um, I know you all have busy lives. I know you all have full plates. Uh, your life is very much like my life. There's not a lot of free time where you can just sit in front of your computer or TV and go, okay, I think I want to watch another sermon this week. But that's exactly what I'm going to encourage you to do. Um, part of it has to do with the fact that this sermon was preached in Cottage Grove. While we were blessed to have Pastor Russell here on that day, um, Pastor A was off. So the only place for the source of this sermon is the website. So if you have the time or you can make the time, I'm going to encourage you. Go to our website, look for the sermon, Jesus' Glory Revealed in Discipleship. It was from the second Sunday in February. And again, let me tease you with this. I've been doing this for over 35 years. And I cannot tell you a sermon that has probably opened up my mind and my understanding of various aspects of Christ's ministry as this one did as I prepared it and then as I shared it with the congregation. There's so much about this relationship between a rabbi and his disciple that nobody had ever taught me. But once I started to dig in and once I got my head around that relationship and how ultimately important it is, there were things that just, if you will, came clear. Not only certain things that Jesus said, but then also some of the interaction with his disciples. One example would be in the upper room, as Jesus says, um, one of you is going to betray me. And they go around the table, certainly not I, Lord. I had never noticed this, but he gets to Judas and he says something different. Certainly not I, Rabbi. There is so much meaning behind that. So I'm going to encourage you, if you can, Please watch that sermon, and you will not only learn new things that we should have been taught years ago, but ultimately you will begin to understand the depths of what John is saying when it means to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And I think that's maybe been one of the shortfalls of our Lenten seasons of past, because the end goal always seems like heaven. And don't get me wrong, that is one of the end goals of our faith. But the beautiful thing is when you understand the rabbi and disciple relationship, salvation is the beginning point, the starting point, not the goal. Once we know we're saved, once we know we're on our way to heaven, that changes everything. Everything about our life here and everything about our relationship with our God while we live our lives here. And one of the points that is vitally important to understand the rabbi and disciple relationship, and this is in the Mishnah, the Jewish writings, so it's their perspective on that relationship, that there is no greater honor for a disciple than at the end of the day to be covered in his rabbi's dust. And what that refers to is as the rabbi would walk along, he'd kick up the dust from the road, and as his disciples followed him that closely, at the end of the day, they were covered in the dust that the rabbi kicked up. It's that important of a relationship, and it's that important to understand that relationship, to understand what John is talking about when he writes to these early Christians, because he's basing it, he's amplifying it on something that he said in his gospel. All right, I also get it because that's an assignment for you this week, uh, and this point is vitally, uh, vital to make and understand this. What I'd like to do is share one of the video clips I used in that sermon, so you see not only the cost in worldly terms of being a disciple, but also the joy that we receive in Christ's invitation to be one of his disciples. As a dramatic contrast to the power-hungry leaders in the kingdom of man, what became of some of Jesus' followers, the servant leaders in the kingdom of God? Most of the disciples were simple tradesmen with little money. They were the local boys with no formal training. But something lit them up to travel the world, telling people about Jesus. Something so transformed them that they spent the rest of their lives telling anyone who would listen the gospel story. And because the good news 
was so often a threat to the leaders who were in power, the disciples were often treated just the way Jesus had promised. That is to say, they were loved by the people, but feared by those in power. Earlier in the Gospels, as Jesus was leaving for his final trip to Jerusalem, he said to his disciples and the crowd that was following him, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world yet forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 34 through 36. Jesus told it like it is. There would be a cost to being a disciple of Jesus. That cost might be the loss of luxury or the loss of friends or even the loss of life. Now, according to the kingdoms of man, success in life is defined by gaining what the world has to offer. We've all heard the phrase, he who dies with the most toys wins. But Jesus was blunt. He taught the exact opposite in the kingdom of God. He said that you can conquer the whole world and still lose out on what's most important. This is what drove the disciples. They had been transformed by the life of Jesus. They believed his teaching and his commands. And they knew that their reward was not of this world. Their reward had eternal significance. So, despite the cost, they were willing to leave their home and travel the world to share the gospel message. Within decades of the crucifixion of Jesus, his closest followers went from disciples in hiding to bold proclaimers of the gospel accounts. None of them backed down, and many of them gave their lives for their eyewitness testimonies. Because of their love for each other, their love for others, their sacrifices, and their personal testimonies, the Christian church gained a strong early following. The four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were proclaimed throughout the world. And the four Gospel writers became the most widely read historians in history. I don't want you to misunderstand when John teaches that following the footsteps of Jesus is one of the ways I identify ourselves as being in a relationship with God and then ultimately can be in a relationship with each other. It's a truth that he speaks, but we have to be careful handling that truth because you and I can only see how people walk. We don't see why they walk the way they do. We don't know what's in people's hearts. And it, we have to be careful that we don't go around saying, you are a disciple, you aren't a disciple based on what you do. God's the ultimate judge of that. But you heard in the video that if you are truly a disciple of Jesus Christ, it does transform your life. These men were willing to die for their Savior and for the sake of the gospel. What John places before his listeners and us is, are we willing to live for our Savior and the sake of the gospel. And he uh, brings that message home in this final section. You look at the board and go, oh man, that is so complicated. So let, let me make it very simple. See, it's understanding how John writes that helps us work our way through these lessons of love. And it's important that we do know that he keeps going back and saying the same thing in different ways. And he's trying to reinforce this message because it's one that you won't hear from the world. Um, and if we don't know how the Holy Spirit has him right, then this makes no sense. It sounds like he's contradicting himself. I'm not giving you a new command. Then he turns around and says, I am 
And the only way to unravel that is to understand this amplification technique and then also some of the words that he's using. Uh, the first word we should understand is when it's translated as message. In the Greek language, that's the word logos. And as soon as you hear the word logos, or at least those original listeners, it takes you immediately back to the opening verses of John's gospel. In the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. It's talking about the Son of God taking on our flesh and blood. It's talking about the fulfillment of the Messiah promise. And so when John says, I'm not, I'm not telling you anything new. This isn't a new command. This is what you've heard from the beginning. He's talking about that fellowship or relationship with God. It's always been the same story. The only way that works is that God sent you a rescuer to restore that relationship. And this is where it becomes very important that we understand this letter in view of our series, Lent Means Love, because sometimes you hear the word command, and if you're like me, my my mind immediately goes to law, commandment. These are things that I have to do, and that's not anywhere close to what John is saying. The main word for this word command is telos. And hopefully you, you know of a telos in your own life. You hear it in words like telescope or telegraph. Basically, the meaning of this word, the concept is, is to get us to our final goal. It's the process whereby we are where we're at and we finally get to our, our final destination. That's what it's talking about. John's saying the command is nothing new. This is always how the process of restoring your relationship with God has worked. You can't do it on your own. You can't get smart enough. You can't work hard enough to once again be at one with God. Your sin is always going to stand in the way, and the only way to break that barrier down is through Jesus. That's, that's why you're supposed to embrace him. That's why he is supposed to be the Lord of your, your life. That's the fellowship that John last week talked about being restored. Now he's saying that's the old command. That, that's nothing new. But then he goes on to say, I am talking about something new, and that's the application, and it's the other side of the fellowship table. This recreation of your fellowship with God is meant to impact your life. Now it's a different process. How do we get to the end goal of actually living out this love that has touched our hearts and touched our lives? And John says that plays out in your relationship with one another. So if you see your brother or sister in Christ toying with the idea of this new false teaching, Gnosticism, out of love, what you want to do is give them a hand, hold them accountable, encourage them to listen to the truth and reject the lie. The same thing is true still today. Gnosticism is repackaged in many other forms, but you know all of the lies that the world teaches. You are most important. Me first. Uh, you don't even need a movement for that to happen. It, it's burned within our sinful nature. We want to be selfish. We want to be loveless towards those who don't extend love to us. Jesus Christ shows up and says, it's just the opposite Look at how I've treated you. Look at what I've done for you. And the only thing that motivated me to do that was my love for you. And based on that, John says, okay, so now you do have a new command. You do not have a new telos. You do have a new goal in your life. And that is to live out love towards others the same way that God has shown his love towards you. To hammer this home and to show you that this is both an old and a new command, if you will, I want to go back to those lessons that I shared with you uh, from the worship folder. The first is the old command, and Zephaniah is the perfect example of that. If you know anything about Zephaniah, he's one of the minor prophets, minor because the amount of writings is less. He's not that well known, but he served at the time of uh, the king of Judah by the name of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was one of the last good kings that Judah ever enjoyed. 
uh, because after him, they went into this spiritual nosedive, which eventually led to the Babylonian captivity. I don't want to bore you with history. What I want to share with you is the message of Zephaniah. Because God knew what was coming for his chosen people because of their rebellious nature and because so often they wanted to make their own way through life. And so out of love, God sends Zephaniah. If you read through the book of Zephaniah, and it's, it's a quick read, but there is no less than 12 different times that God says to his people, judgment is coming. He says, I want you to understand this judgment is not because of my anger or hatred, because I've made you a promise of Messiah. I've promised to send you a rescuer, somebody to make this all right again. And so this message of love is meant to put you back on the right path. But even if you disregard me, even if you choose to be selfish, even if you choose to lie to yourself, please understand that as your creator and as your redeemer, I love you. The section was chosen because again and again, God reassures his own people that there is no human way for you to make this right. There's no human way for you to restore your relationship with God, and there is no human way for you as mankind to fix this broken world. And so I make you a promise, and I'm keeping that promise, and it's a promise of love. I will do that through my son, the old goal. Then the other lesson takes us to the new goal, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. You can pick either one, read through it, and you will recognize that this was one of the most rebellious and selfish congregations of the first century. In fact, if you really look closely at the things that Paul writes to this congregation, I, I believe that if this was a church that existed today, we would kick them out of our fellowship. You guys are selfish, you're self-serving, you don't care about the gospel, you only care about yourselves. And once in a while you kind of hear Paul speak that way. And yet in the midst of all of that, God has Paul write him a letter of love. He says, I love you. I've restored you to what you could be and what you should be through my son. And now what I want you to be is the new creation. I want you to get back to what I created you to be. I want your hearts to love me, and I want your hearts to love each other. I want your hearts also to love this world, not for its lies, but because you know the truth, and it desperately needs it. first heard it, I, I didn't understand, but now I do, I do, I do, I do, I do. Stephanie, wait! What are you doing? Don't go in there! I have to go. Why? I have to. I don't understand. I thought I knew you. How can you really know me here? You can't. What do you mean I can't know you? I've known you for years! You know, but since this, now everything's different. Listen, forget about this. Right? You don't have to go. Just stay with me. I can't stay. I've heard the song and it was, it was beautiful. What song? What are you talking about? I, I tried to forget it. I, I tried, but I can't. I can't forget it. Listen, if you go in there, you won't come back. You know that, don't you? You'll die. Die? No, no, this is death. You can feel it. It surrounds you. No, there's no death in there. Please don't go. I'll change. I'll, I'll do whatever you want.
there's nothing you can change. It's calling me. Can't you hear it? Come on, come with me. We can go together no. and... No, I... I can't go in there. Wait. Don't go, please. I love you. Love me? This darkness doesn't allow you to love. Not real love. Now that... That's love. That's... Real love. You okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. What happened? What are you doing here? My wife. She just went through. Oh, man, I'm I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. If there's anything that you need... Do you think it could be good in there? What? In there. You think it's good? No. W why are you talking all crazy like this, man? Your wife's gone. Let her go. I keep hearing this song in my head. It's beautiful. It's like my song. For me. What are you talking about? This isn't right. It's not right here. I just... I just want to be where she is. Let it go. Hey, listen to me. You need to stay away from there. There's nothing there for you. <laughs> I don't know that. You're being deceived. I'm going to get help. Wait here.
are you doing? It is good. Hey, look at me. She's gone. She's not gone. I've seen her. She's in there. Stop it. You, you belong here, not there. Oh, don't you get it? There's nothing here for me. It's empty here. I'm empty. Okay, calm down. No. I've been there. I've seen it. I've heard the song. I gotta go. Don't do it. Don't be stupid. I have to go. When I first heard the song, I didn't understand. But now I do.